Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you uh, for your goodness and your love and your word. Thank you that you have made yourself known um, through your word. We pray, Lord, for your help as we uh, study John chapter 7. We pray that you would teach us. Would you, by your spirit, help us uh, understand what we read? We just acknowledge our, uh, our dependence upon you. Lord, help us see. Help us understand. Help us uh, know what uh, you would have us do with the truths in uh, these verses. So, Lord, have your way here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, welcome to FBC. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, just want to say that I'm glad that you are here, and I want to invite you to join us in John chapter 7, where we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. John 7 verse 1 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone and want to find your Bible on your phone, if you need a Bible, there are some on the seats underneath you for a hard copy. However you need to get there, uh, join us in John 7. we got a lot of ground moving covered today, people, okay? So I hope you brought a seatbelt. We're going to be moving quick. Um, when we sign up for anything, our expectations going in are really important, right? We all know that. Then we're, we're uh, agreeing to something, getting involved in something. We want to know uh, what is it going to cost us? What is that uh, road going to look like? What will it entail? What will it require of us, right? It's frustrating when our expectations aren't met, right? Have you ever like gone on a hike with a friend and they're like, yeah, it's just a short little hike, just like a mile or two, just, you know, downhill mostly, real beginner's level stuff. And then you get out there and it turns out you're on like a Navy SEAL training course going uphill and you're sweating and huffing and puffing the whole way. And you're like, what in the world was that? Right? Going in, you did not tell me up front that's what it was going to be like. It's very frustrating when our expectations are not met. This is why when you embark on an adventure, uh, on something risky, something potentially dangerous, usually there's some kind of like disclosure up front. Maybe it's verbal, maybe it's even a, a written disclosure statement. Here's what to expect up ahead, right? If you're having a big medical procedure, if you are going whitewater rafting, if you're eating at Taco Bell, right? Just you need to know, here's what you're getting yourself into. Are you sure you want to do this, right? The same is true when it comes to following Jesus, Jesus invites us to follow him, to go the way of Jesus, to walk with him. Naturally, then, we should wonder, as he calls us to repent of our sin and follow him, trust in him, what will that trajectory look like? What can we reasonably assume is in our future if we are walking with Jesus? No doubt it will include incomparable blessings eternal life and salvation, we could go on and on, but at the same time, there will be challenges, difficulty ahead. That's what the text is going to unpack for us this morning. Again, we're going to move a bit faster than we normally do. we got 36 verses to cover, people, because at FBC, we party hard, okay? We are jumping in we're not going to get into every detail this morning. We're going to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the section all together and, and trace the events as they're taking place. And then I'm going to go back through and kind of point out a few of, I think, 
uh, the key takeaways and dynamics at play. Let's uh, get started. You looked at uh, the beginning of the chapter as Ian read chapter 7, 1 through 7 for us, and you saw a little bit of the context, okay? Chapter, or excuse me, verse 2 talks about the festival of tabernacles, or maybe the uh, feast of booths is what your translation says, uh, singing about the same thing. This was a festival that took place annually. One of the three most significant uh, events or festivals in the Jewish year. Pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate, and what they would do is they would, uh, the men would be uh, kicked out of the house, essentially, I mean, yeah, and they would sleep outdoors. They would build these, like, structures, these temporary uh, huts, structure, tabernacle-like situations for the duration of the festival, kind of like camping. And it would remind them of how God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness, right? When they didn't have uh, permanent homes and they were on the move, wandering, and they had to live in tabernacles, temporary structures. And so they were essentially recreating that event. Uh, Also, it coincided in the fall, September, October time with the harvest. And so it was also a celebration of the harvest, God's provision, and so on. It would be expected then for this festival for for Jesus and his family to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And you see his brothers in verses 3 through 5 kind of talking about that. And they're urging him saying, hey, um, as we're heading to this festival, this would be a great place to go more public with your ministry, right? We've heard some of the things. We've seen some of the things. This is a chance for you to let your works be seen. Show yourself to the world. Now, we could interpret this in one of two ways. Some commentators will say his brothers were genuine. His brothers were saying, hey, like we, we believe in you somewhat. Uh, this is a chance, you know, to go and, and show yourself even more fully. But we see in verse 5 a key detail, right? Verse 5 shows us that they, they don't believe in him. And so it, it seems more probable to understand their commentary as kind of a jab, kind of a, a taunt, kind of a, a, a pushing, not out of sincerity, but kind of a, hey, go show yourself to the world if you really are who you say you are sort of thing. Verse 8, Jesus responds, that, hey, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Okay, Jesus sends his brothers on ahead. Now you guys go to the festival. He uh, ends up going after them in secret, kind of on his own terms, on his own timeline, essentially. Just a a side note here in the text in verse 6, Jesus says what? That his his time has not yet come. And maybe that reminds you of something he said in chapter 2 at the wedding when his mom wants him to get involved. And he says what? My hour has not yet come. We're going to see similar language. Fast forward to verse 30 where people try to seize Jesus and, and arrest him. And the text tells us that they couldn't do that. They don't do that because his time or his hour had not yet come. And so in a few ways, we see repeated here in the text the simple truth that Jesus is not rushed. The plans of God are not to be 
manipulated. Jesus is not anxious about the unfolding of the Father's plan and timeline. The plans of God are not threatened or rushed. And I think that's a word for someone here this morning. We live in an anxious world, in an anxious time. We're constantly worried about something. Maybe you're here this morning and you're worried that something in your life hasn't developed at the pace you think that it should, or God hasn't answered a prayer in the timeline that you think is appropriate, and you're worried because it seems like the timing of your plan and God's plan aren't working out, and he you know, needs to get with the program of your plan for your life, right? He's not. You need to remember, God's timeline is not to be rushed or manipulated. God is not late or slow in fulfilling his plans. God knows what he's doing. And so you can rest knowing that God's will for your, will for your life will be accomplished in his good timing. And so like Jesus, we can trust the timing of the Father once he gets to the festival, though, look what happens. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing, nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you, excuse me, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd says endearingly, You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. Not come are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Okay, a lot's there, right? Once at the festival, verse 14, Jesus begins to teach in the temple as was common for a rabbi to do. But you notice in verse 15, it tells us what? The crowds are amazed at his teaching. And they're asking the first key question, where does his teaching come from? Right? If, if you were to be a, a respected rabbi in the Jewish world, you would have had to study under a rabbi or a rabbinic Scholar, You would have to go to some sort of formal uh, education of that kind. Have authority essentially passed down to you from the rabbi that you studied under. And so they're asking, hey, Jesus never formally studied under a rabbi. He never went to school in that way. Whose shoulders is he standing upon? Right? Where did his authority come from? Did he go, they're asking, where did he go to school? Is he the product of a good university? Did he go to American public school and we should be worried about him? Does he have a legitimate degree? I went to American public school. No shame. Okay. Right? Rather than claiming independent authority, though, 
He doesn't just say, hey, I, I do my own thing. I'm some sort of, you know, upstart. Listen to me. What does he say? He says his authority comes directly from his father. So, yes, it is passed down. Authority is received from the father in that sense. It's not his own. It comes from the one who sent him. And then he speaks about working a miracle. I'm probably referencing back to chapter 5. You remember he heals the paralyzed man at the pool, and it happened to be on the Sabbath. And so all the religious leaders got really upset about that and grumpy because you're not supposed to do that sort of thing on the Sabbath. And he essentially tells them, hey, you are willing to circumcise a young boy on the Sabbath, and that doesn't violate the Sabbath. And so why would I not be able to heal, heal a man's whole body on the Sabbath? And so you see just this opposition in the text, right? Conflict, pushback, criticism. And Jesus is constantly having to answer that. Okay, text continues, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? And here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is teaching in the temple. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. Okay, so the dialogue unfolds, and there's another key question. First, they're like, hey, where does this guy's teaching come from? Where did he go to school? Now they're asking, where did he come from, right? Verse 27, where is this guy from? Because there was a strand of teaching in the Jewish world that would say, hey, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be like unknown and then sort of appear. Like, no one's going to know, he just kind of pops onto the scene. And they're saying, but, but we know where he's from. Like we know his parents, we know his family, and so how exactly does this work? And his answer was the same as it was before, right? Where, where does his teaching come from? He says, from my father, and they're like, well, where, where does he come from? He says, what? Came from my father, sent by my father, the text says. Verse 30. Again, we're moving quick. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? All right, 36 verses. We read them all, okay? Now let's, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. You see conflict is heating up, especially in this last section. Uh, they're trying to seize him. The Pharisees, the chief priest, the temple guards are trying to arrest him. He avoids it. Verse 35, another key question uh, comes up. Right? He says he's going away. He says they're not going to be able to find him. And so they're asking, they're wondering what uh, what is he talking about? Where is he going? Like, is he going to go live among the Gentiles, like in other parts of the Roman world, with the Greeks and teach them? Because we don't want to go there. We're good Jews. We don't want to get you know, caught up in that. Is, that. is that what he means? And remember, again, the, the few uh, previous questions. Where did he go to school? Where did he get his teaching? From his father. Where did he come from? He was sent by his father. Now, where is he going? To his father. Right? That's his constant 
response, verse 33, he's going back to his father, to the one mentioned, sent him by way of the cross and the resurrection and ascension. And so notice here in, in this response a few key doctrines that we hold to as Christians. First, the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? We worship one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus here is claiming right, unparalleled unity with his Father. Talking about the will of his Father, he, he speaks as the, the authorized representative of the Father. He came from the Father, he's going back to the Father. So you see just this unity between God the Father and God the Son, and of course the rest of Scripture affirms God the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. John chapter 1, of course, affirms this in verse 1 of this whole book. saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus is God himself. And we see then in this text both unity and distinction. So the doctrine of the Trinity is on display in part here. We also see the doctrine of the Incarnation, right? God in the flesh. Verse 29, Jesus came from heaven. He came from the center. He was sent. And that's repeated over and over again through the passage, right? The one who sent me, the one who sent me, the Father sent me, over and over again, showing Jesus stepped into our world, came from heaven, was born among us as a human being. John 1, 14, right? The Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, really moved into the neighborhood, you could say. God himself drawing near. This is what we sing about, what we celebrate at Christmas. God didn't stay far off. He came near and walked among us. So Jesus is saying, I was sent here by my Father. Now, these are all massive claims, right? Huge claims about who Jesus is and about what that means. And so, just a, a first response for us, the first question we need to ask is, uh, the question we've been asking really week after week after week is, how will we respond to Jesus? We all have a decision to make in terms of how we will respond to the gospel. That's what John's been doing throughout this whole book. He presents Jesus to us. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. Here's what he said. Will you believe? Will you follow? Will you obey? Will you surrender to him? And you notice, because we've seen in this chapter so far, like wherever Jesus goes, there's, there's division. And he's, he's split in the room, right? Some say he will believe, right? Verse 12, right? what's the people, the crowd's response? Well, some say he's a good man. Others, he's leading people astray. Okay? The, the room is split. Verse uh, 30 and 31, someone arrest him, kill him track him down while others believe. And so John's kind of showing, hey, the room is being split, and so what uh, side are you going to be on? Will you be on team Jesus? Will you bow the knee to Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus and find eternal life in Jesus? And so I just want to be really clear that when the gospel is proclaimed, preach the message of Jesus, there is a, a personal invitation an invitation to you. There, there's personal implications for you. Right? This isn't just a, a theological exercise in learning new content out the, about the Bible. Jesus calls 
you to follow and to believe. And then you must decide, will you or not? And so we celebrate the gospel. Jesus died. He came. He died for our sins on the cross. He calls us to repent, to believe, to follow him, to obey, to find in him eternal life, forgiveness of our sins. Great joy and knowing God. Respond. Walking with him in relationship, being a part of his family, we have to respond. Now, there's another key point in this text that we really need to see. One is just, again, what we've seen throughout John, you know, every week. Here is Jesus. Will you believe? Will you respond? But also notice the conflict, the misunderstanding, the, the rejection that Jesus faces. Okay, look at how many times it came up in the text. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, he didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Okay, I don't know how you define or quantify conflict, but this is definitely it. Okay, someone's trying to kill you. You are not on good terms. Okay, so conflict. Not only that, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. There's family conflict and drama. His brothers are not buying in. And remember, again, family ties in the ancient world were like, on another level of importance from what they are today, right? We know family is important today, but in our, you know, Western individualistic ways, right? We have no problem picking up and moving away from family and mostly, you know, doing our own thing. But in the ancient world, I mean, family was central. Family ties were huge. Brothers were often like allies, those kinship ties. And so important conflict between family members was seen as a tragedy. And so here Jesus' brothers are, and they don't even believe in him. They're kind of jabbing at him. Verse 12, among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him, as we just referenced, right? Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Now, realize deceiving the people was no small accusation. Deceiving the people, leading the people of God astray into false worship, into idolatry, claiming he was a false prophet, leading them away from the truth. I mean, what happened to false prophets in the Old Testament? They were stoned, they were killed. And so they're not saying like, ah, some say he's good, some say, ah, I think he's kind of, you know, deceiving people. Like, this is a big accusation. The crowd heaps it on, verse 20, you are demon-possessed. They're like literally just saying, you're crazy, you've lost touch with reality. You are not perceiving things accurately. Verse 32, the Pharisees and the crowd whispering such things about him. uh, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Okay, so see the picture? Just repeated over and over again. Jesus, you're crazy. You're a deceiver. Authorities want to arrest him. People want to kill him. The religious leaders want him gone. His own family doesn't believe in him. It's another theme throughout the book of John. Jesus, the light of the world, comes but is not received by the world, is not understood by the world because what people love darkness, John 3 says. There's two points I want us to see from this. Two things I I think are really applicable to our hearts and to our lives. The first, that we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows about rejection. 
Okay, take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows about rejection. Jesus is no stranger to conflict, to criticism, to opposition, to accusation. And we often forget about the humanity of Jesus. In our Christology, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But sometimes the fully man part, we kind of downplay. And we think Jesus is, you know, he's the God-man, so so nothing could touch him or affect him or influence him in a negative way, right? Right? He, He was fully man. He got tired and weary. Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is not unable to empathize, or maybe your, your translation says, to sympathize with you in your weakness, in your pain, in your temptation, in your struggle. He's been there, yet was without sin. So in Jesus, we don't have a Savior who is cold and aloof and kind of, you know, comforting us like at arm's length, like, it's going to be okay, just want to keep my safe distance from you. That's not how Jesus comforts us from afar because he's the one who suffers with us. He knows He's been there. He's been lonely and rejected and ridiculed and accused and experienced the lows and the valleys of life. Isaiah 53 calls him what? The man of sorrows. And isn't it comforting? When maybe you've experienced this thing in your life, you sit down with a friend and you're in a hard season, friend, you're discouraged and you're feeling just beat up and your heart is heavy for whatever reason, and you share that with a friend and they're able to say, ah, oh, me too. Like, I, I, I felt that. Or I'm feeling that now. Or, oh, I've been there. Someone who understands, someone who gets it. It's comforting to us to know. And so even more, we have this in our friend Jesus, our Savior Jesus, our King Jesus. Hear this encouraging word from Pastor Dane Ortland. Uh, he wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, which so beautifully unpacks the heart of Christ. And he's reflecting on Hebrews 4 about Jesus being able to empathize, sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He, here his application. I'm going to quote it at length. He says, Consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, When it feels like life is passing us by. When it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers. When we can't sort out our emotions. When the longtime friend lets us down. When a family member betrays us. When we feel deeply misunderstood. When we are laughed at by the impressive. In short, Towel, the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel. There, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like 
And he sits close to us and embraces us and is with us in solidarity. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. And that sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. So as we look at John chapter 7, we see just a series of conflict and pushback and rejection and criticism and pain. We can take comfort in knowing that, that Jesus knows about rejection. The second application of this truth is that we can expect rejection. Jesus, we should prepare for rejection. If this is how Jesus, our Lord, was treated, how do we think followers of Jesus who bear his name in the world will be treated? So so getting back to what we started with this morning, thinking about expectations, the trajectory of the Christian life. What are we signing up for? What is ahead? For a while, I think in, in church world, we've been either subtly or not so subtly conditioned to really I mean, seek approval from the world, maybe even expect approval, like, like you know, make things really nice and entertaining and cool, and uh, people are going to come, and people are going to like what we're doing here, and there's going to be you know, real no conflict. It's going to be great. I think the past few decades of church world could be defined as you know, the era of cool Christianity. We, we want to make Jesus cool. We're like Jesus' you know, PR campaign. We've got to make him more palatable to the modern world. We've got to make Jesus cool. We want to seek relevance. We want to be entertaining. We're worrying about marketing because we have this product we need to kind of shuffle and sell to the consumers. And so in that framework, rejection is failure. Rejection is to be avoided at all costs. Rejection means we are not cool. It's a blow to the ego. And so we package Jesus and Christianity in a way as to not offend, in a way that will avoid rejection, in a way that will just make people more comfortable with it. Now, don't misunderstand. Contextualization is not bad, right, to communicate the gospel in a way that that makes sense to our world. That's not a bad thing, but I believe we've gone too far. And really, what's, if you think about that, it's, it's a really um, sad, small view of God, right? What, what a sad view of God that we've bought into at times and of the gospel that, that smacks of desperation as if the gospel is not powerful enough to change hearts. The word of God and the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit is not enough. So we, we're going to give Jesus some help. Make it a little more flashy. We need to help the Holy Spirit win, win hearts. Get the cool kids to buy in. But part of the eternal 
relevance of the gospel is that Jesus is not worried about being relevant. He's not worried about it. And so what we need, we need not cool Christianity and, and avoid rejection. We need just simple, faithful Christianity, ancient Christianity rooted in the word of God and the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts, to see lives utterly transformed by the gospel. Nothing else. So to go the way of Jesus, and we're going to say, hey, we're going to follow Jesus. We will, we will bear his name. We'll be known as followers of Jesus, Christians, Christ followers. To go that way is to embrace rejection and embrace obscurity and embrace scorn from the world. Like Jesus ultimately went to the cross. In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Right, so you're in good company. Right, so if you're looking to, to make everyone happy, to have no turbulent waters, to be received everywhere warmly, then don't follow Jesus. <laughs> now, I, I want to clarify, this isn't like license to be rude and a bully and lack tact and not love people well. You know, sometimes we embrace this persecution complex. People like, I'm going to be persecuted no matter what, so I'm just going to be rude to my neighbors and mean and talk down to people. And you know, it's just being persecuted for Jesus. And sometimes you're just being persecuted because you're just rude and don't love people well, you know? <laughs> so we have to be careful that the rejection we experience is rejection for the sake of the gospel because the message of the gospel is inherently offensive and people aren't going to understand it or have pushback against it. That kind of rejection, okay? Not rejection because we're just rude and don't love people. Well, okay, let's be careful here. But if we know this up front, the reason I'm pointing this out is if we know this up front, it's going to be easier when it comes. If, if we're expecting up front to be, you know, mocked and misunderstood, then when it happens, it's not going to be abnormal. You know, we're not going to suffer like a crisis of faith and wait a second, I didn't think this was part of the deal. Or when people are rude to us or subtly distance themselves from us, it, it's not going to be unexpected. Is there something we're, uh, happening that's strange? Right? We'll be prepared for it. And so I say this, last point here, I say this not to scare us, not to make us grumble and like following Jesus is going to be really awful. Like glad you're here. I'm not, I'm not saying this to make us just discouraged or kind of, oh, this is going to be the worst, but I guess it's worth it. Well, I'm saying this because we need to shape our perspective and our expectations about what following Jesus will mean. And realize, realize that it's through trial, that God, it's through opposition, and it's through suffering. Really, the way of the cross that God manifests his power and his glory, right? And so it's in those places where we are weak and, and worn down. It's in those places that the power of God can be displayed. That's how God works. Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you know the verse, Paul, speaking of the power of God being made perfect in weakness. And so it's through trial and opposition and, and rejection and our weakness that the power of God is manifest, is shown for what it is. Think about it, the gospel, it's foolishness to the world. It looks like death, it looks like failure, it looks like a waste of time. But it's what God used to save the world and transform hearts and give new life, 
and bring about the resurrection and our salvation. So salvation and new life in Christ came through death and then resurrection. And so could it be that as we go the way of Jesus and we face trial and rejection and suffering and pain and hardship, that it's in those places the power of God and the glory of God and the goodness of God would be most displayed. Would you pray with me? We pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We praise you. You are our Savior. You are our King. And we see in this text, this all the conflict, all the misunderstanding, all the rejection that you faced. And we pray that you would equip us with boldness, with endurance, with courage, with great love, in order to, to face the challenges in our own day, Lord. Would you help us? Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of the truth of the gospel, that we now have eternal life in your name, that the temporary circumstances might be hard. We have uh, the hope of eternity with you. We're a part of your family. And if we have uh, the love of the king, then the opinions of the crowds and the peasants aren't going to matter as much. So Lord, help us be confident in who you are. Amen. Can you stand back up this morning as we close out service?